Hi everyone, Andrew here. My apologies for the delay in posting this episode. I had the opportunity to visit with Dr. Chris Burke from the University of Washington Cardiac Surgery Group to discuss aortic valve repair. You have probably heard of mitral valve repair, but if you were like me 12 months ago, you may not have heard of aortic valve repair. This is an exciting idea with a lot of promise. Dr. Burke will teach about the things to consider when evaluating for aortic valve repair. He is a great teacher, and I think you will learn a lot. I appreciate you taking the time to listen to the show. If you are enjoying the show, please navigate to iTunes and leave a rating and review. It really helps. And with that, let's get started. This is AP Cardiology, and this is your host, Andrew Perry. Thank you for meeting with me today, Dr. Burke. Can I have you state your name and your title for our listeners? Of course. Thanks for having me. So my name is Chris Burke, and I'm an assistant professor of cardiac surgery at the University of Washington. Beautiful. Thank you. And one of your areas of expertise or interest is aorta surgery and aortic valve surgery. And so I'm here to talk to you today about that. To start our discussion, I will present a case um, briefly. We are seeing a 40-year-old man with bicuspid aortic valve, and he has severe aortic regurgitation with a mildly dilated left ventricle and a mildly depressed left ventricular ejection fraction. To put some numbers on that, the left ventricle dilation has an end systolic diameter of around 47 millimeters, and the ejection fraction is around 50%. He is asymptomatic and reports New York Heart Association class one symptoms, and he really has no other significant comorbidities, you know, with, you know, respiratory distress or diabetes or kidney problems. So he's been followed for aortic regurgitation for about the past five years. And then recently he's been determined to have severe aortic regurgitation. So he's referred to your clinic uh, to be evaluated for aortic valve surgery. Now, when these patients are first referred to you, I think most people are thinking, we're referring this patient to you to be, uh, have a discussion about aortic valve replacement. Um, but I want to talk to you today about aortic valve repair. And so talking about this patient in specific, could we discuss for a moment about how aortic valve replacement may be less desirable for this patient? Yeah. So I think, uh, I think Andrew, that that's kind of, that's really the, the fundamental, you know, crux in question when you're seeing a patient like this. So first of all, I mean, the first thing, you know, going over the patient, um, the patient's relatively asymptomatic, you know, but does have severe aortic regurgitation and is starting to dilate a bit and um, starting to have depressed ejection fraction. So the first thing is, um, I, I agree with the referral that this patient um, warrants intervention on the aortic valve. And um, historically, that would be an aortic valve replacement. There are you know, several considerations for aortic valve replacement or AVR in a young patient. Um, we would sort of um, classically push a patient like this, or at least counsel a patient like this um, for a mechanical um, AVR, which um, obviously has benefits of durability, but has a significant drawback of anticoagulation. Um, I, I would just briefly talk about 
sort of a, a traditional bioprosthetic AVR in a patient who's 40, it's pretty clear that that's quite frankly, kind of a bad operation. Um, even in the, even in the world of TAVR and future valve and valve TAVR, we've just seen more and more with younger patients, the durability of bioprosthetic valves is very poor and many times less than 10 years. And so that's a circumstance where this patient would assuredly need future um, open heart surgery if, if, uh, if he were to elect to get the bioprosthetic um, mm -hmm. APR. It's oftentimes, just to elaborate on that, oftentimes hard to convince them to go for a mechanical aortic valve because, you know, frequently they view it as like, you know, medication monitoring, and then sometimes like lifestyles have to change sure. as well. Sure. And, and I think, I think mechanical AVR, you know, deserves um, a bit of, of mention and thought as well. So number one, you're exactly right. <clears throat> Being on indefinite anticoagulation is less and less acceptable, it seems like, to patients. And I think for good reason, you know, there's certainly lifestyle considerations and, you know, any patient who's taken Coumadin, there's all the dietary and monitoring issues that go with that. And there's also a, a real risk over a patient's lifetime of having a significant bleeding um, event. And the problem with a mechanical valve is you know, unlike atrial fibrillation or some other indication for anticoagulation where you can sort of stop and kind of accept the risk of what might happen, you really can't stop anticoagulation with a mechanical valve. And so if a patient were to develop GI bleeds or something like that, they basically have to have reoperative surgery to take the valve out. So I think that's number one. You know, the second issue with a mechanical valve, just like a bioprosthetic valve, is that it's a, it's a valve prosthesis you know, it is prone to things like infection, you know, for mechanical valve, obviously you can have issues with clotting, pannus formation, things like that. And it's becoming more and more clear that there's probably about a 1%, maybe higher um, annual risk of reoperation um, for patients with a mechanical valve. And again, you can start to do the arithmetic at 40. And I make this point all the time when I'm sort of giving talks and talking about this, that I, I never ever tell a patient that if they get a mechanical valve, they won't need heart surgery again, because that's simply not true. And, and the data, you know, bears that out. That's much higher than I think I, than I appreciated. Sure. You know, so I think a mechanical AVR is, is not a, is not a bad choice uh, in a patient like this. Um, certainly if you're going to do an AVR, I think it's, if you're forced to do a valve replacement, it's probably the best choice. We should just mention very briefly, I think, to be complete, a Ross procedure, which is seeing a bit of a resurgence in, mm -hmm. in um, adult cardiac surgery. A Ross procedure is, is a much better operation for aortic stenosis. Um, it really needs to be used with caution with aortic regurgitation, especially kind of pure, isolated aortic regurgitation. Um, and you can have late failures with autograft dilation, and that's a major risk factor for Ross failure. So I think I would put a Ross in a patient like this a little bit lower down on my list of appropriate operations. So I think you're right. So I think mechanical AVR is certainly a reasonable procedure for a patient like this, but I can tell you my first step is going to be evaluating this patient for repair because, you know, a 40 year old with a bicuspid valve in pure aortic regurgitation um, many times um, can get, can receive a durable repair. Okay. 
So let's go into then talking about how you assess someone for repairability. And I think a large part that relates to the, you know, the anatomy of the valve, the anatomy of the annulus, and then also the mechanism of aortic regurgitation. So could you just walk me through like, what's your initial steps in like reviewing imaging or talking to the patient in proceeding towards that? Sure. So I think the, 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 the first step is to even take a step back. And I like to place, you know, patients in, into, into various groups when it pertains to this. And, and the first is whether or not there's an aortic root aneurysm that's present. Okay. Um, and, and so there's patients with severe AR with root aneurysms, patients with severe AR without root aneurysms, and then the third category getting into aortic stenosis. So you start to think about gradients and whether it's a mixed pathology with mixed aortic stenosis, aortic regurgitation. Okay. And those three categories um, all have different treatment choices. So I think that is the first thing that I'm doing is figuring out under which category does a patient fall because the treatment's very different. Now, I, I was being very specific there when I said aortic root aneurysm. I care less about the ascending aorta or, or aortic arch or something like that. Mm-hmm. That's easily treated. But when we think about the valve complex, I'm really concerned about the aortic root or sort of the sinus segment there. So for, so that's really the first thing. So that's kind of a CT scan or, or echo, you know, assessment for what is the, what's the morphology of the aortic root, you know, assuming that this patient doesn't have an aortic root aneurysm, you're exactly right. The next thing is to really focus on the um, echocardiogram and I'm looking at several things. So I'm first assessing the morphology of the regurgitant jet. So in in bicuspid AR, it's it's usually eccentric. Sometimes you get a central jet, but it's usually an eccentric jet. Mm -hmm. I like to, I always make note of the annular dimension. So that's extremely important to to get a sense for um, how much annular dilation there is. Since a a mainstay of repair is actually an annuloplasty or or a reduction of the size of the aortic annulus. And so you like to see a nice um, big aortic annulus if possible. And and then I want to assess the leaflets. The first thing you're looking at is the degree of calcification. Mm -hmm. You really, your hope for nice thin leaflets that are mobile, that, you know, open, you know, fully for a bicuspid valve. It's going to be kind of that fish mouth appearance. Mm -hmm. And presumably and in a younger patient, there should be minimal calcification for the most part. Correct. Though, though, and sometimes in, in bicuspid or even unicuspid disease, you can, you can see premature, premature calcification, but usually for isolated AR, um, again, without significant gradients in AS, you see minimal calcification. And that's, that's certainly what you want to see. Some, you know, many times you can see thickening on the RAFA for like a Sievers one where you have a fused leaflet. Sometimes there's even a little bit of calcification there. That's pretty easy to deal with. You know, you can shave that off. Okay. A Sievers one is, you know, traditionally it looks, it looks very similar to a tricuspid aortic valve, except two of the RAFA are essentially fused together. Is that correct? There, there's one RAFA. So you have, yeah. So instead of there's two true commissures and instead of your third commissure, you have a fused RAFA. So that's a Sievers one. If you had two fused RAFA, that would be a Sievers two or actually a unicuspid valve. Yeah. So for the Sievers one, which is the most common type of bicuspid valve, and among that, the most common is a right-left fusion. 
That's what we see about 70% of the time or so. So there's one fused refe there. But I want to make a specific point with uh, bicuspid valves and especially Seavers 1 bicuspids. And that is this concept of the commissural angle. Um, and this is proving to be extremely important. And so when I'm talking about commissural angle, I'm talking about the angle between the two true commissures. So in a perfectly symmetric valve, classically a Seaver zero, that angle is 180, if that makes sense. You've got 180 degrees from commissure to commissure. Mm -hmm. For yes. Seavers one, you really want that angle as close to 180 as possible, if that makes sense. So the more symmetric that valve is, and then you get that kind of perfect fish mouth appearance, that's gonna be a valve that's much more amenable to valve repair, okay? And as that commissural angle um, on that fused leaflet gets lower and lower, your, your odds of repair are, are gonna go down and you're really gonna to have to do much more sort of kind of extensive and, and trickier repairs. And really once it gets down to about 140 degrees or 130 degrees, you know, getting quite asymmetric and like you, like you were suggesting, kind of almost like a, a three leaflet valve at that point, mm -hmm. really difficult to repair that valve because you, you run into some, some leaflet surface issue things. So, so that I think that's one of the, the most important things that I'm looking at on the echo is, is I really want to see the valve to be, you know, fairly symmetric. Um, and then I feel pretty good about repairing that valve. Got it. Okay. And that can be done by transthoracic echo or transesophageal. It, it can. I mean, I think, you know, depending on the windows you get for transthoracic, you can see um, there are occasions if I'm sort of debating, you know, exactly how I want to repair or if something's repairable that I've gotten TEEs um, preoperatively, but, but many times, you know, in a younger patient who has good windows, one can get it on a surface echo. And then Andrew, I should, I should just point out that there's, there's kind of another layer of assessment that happens at the time of surgery. So, I mean, obviously mm -hmm. when we, when we get in surgically, um, there's some, you know, measurements we do on the leaflets to, to make sure that there's enough leaflet surface area to repair um, and make sure we're not going to have prolapse afterwards and things like that. And so, you know, of course, with these patients, similar to what we do in mitral valve, I mean, we always have sort of a backup replacement option because occasionally that, that does happen where we get surprised with fenestrations or something like that. Mm -hmm. Got it. Okay. Very helpful. So just to kind of recap where we've been, you know, first thing that we're looking at is, you know, patient, do they, do they not have an aortic root aneurysm? You know, this is at the sinuses of Alsalva. So those are annulus dilated. Then in the patients who specifically don't have an aortic root aneurysm, then we're looking at the morphology of the valve. We've been talking primarily about bicuspidic valves, you know, centered around our patient. And there we're looking for, you know, a valve that is where the, um, the commissures are, you know, 180 degrees apart from each other. So I think essentially we're getting like a, you know, another way to describe that is, is two leaflets that are sort of half moon shaped, similar to a mitral valve. And that would be a valve that's more likely to be repairable. And the more we're getting a bicuspid valve or it looks more morphologically or on you know, echoes looking more like a tricuspid valve um, with um, different angles between those two true commissures, 
then we're getting you know a less repairable valve. Additionally, you're also looking at the calcification on those valves. And I think assuming that that means you know increased calcification, you know, decreases the likelihood of successful repair. Agree. And then don't forget the gradient. You know, the gradient is extremely important. Because we're, again, shrinking the annulus, okay, and in many times in a bicuspid valve, again, we're kind of, this, this concept of the commissural angle, we're sort of, we try to almost make a Seavers 1 into kind of a Seavers 0. Um, and, and as we'll talk about, some of the annuloplasty devices really, really force the geometry into 180 degree symmetry. Your gradients often will go up. Um, because of that. And so I think you really want to see single digits or very low teens for your mean gradients going in. I think if they're over 20, you know, if a patient kind of has moderate aortic stenosis, that's a, that's a big red flag that you need to have a big red flag about that patient and, and think about, you know, either doing a valve replacement, you know, plus or minus or protected Ross or something like that. I think you're in, you're in another, you're kind of in that third category that I introduced before of kind of mixed pathology. Gotcha. Okay. And since we had mentioned it, maybe we'll circle back, you know, referring to the patients who have an aortic root aneurysm, mm -hmm. you know, how does your approach for repairability then change in those patients? Um, in particular, you know, bicuspid but patients with bicuspid aortic valves frequently have, you know, an, an associated aortic root aneurysm. You know, this, again, this is a completely different bucket here. Um, mm -hmm. So when I'm, when I'm thinking aortic root aneurysms, as it pertains to significant aortic regurgitation, we're really thinking, really thinking a, a sinus diameter of four and a half centimeters or so or greater. Okay. okay. So if a uh, and actually, you know, Andrew, I would say for, for bicuspid valves, actually the most common aortopathy is, is ascending aortic aneurysms that actually spare the sinus segment. Um, it, it's really in, in a Marfan syndrome or a Louis Dietz, you know, or other sort of genetic aortopathies where you get that, you know, annulo aortic ectasia, that kind of old fashioned term for sort of the, you know, Erlenmeyer flask aneurysms at the root. For bicuspid valves, actually, the most common thing we see is ascending aortic aneurysms with, with a relatively preserved and intact sinus segment. Now, and that, that's about 70% of aortopathies or so that we see with bicuspid valves. About 15% of the time for patients with bicuspid valves and aortic aneurysms, you get what, what I call kind of a root phenotype. So it looks, it, it looks like what a Marfan patient would look like, you know, with a, with a root aneurysm that may or may not preserve, you know, the ascending segment, but the patient has a bicuspid valve and, and has no features or family history of Marfan syndrome. Gotcha. Um, and, and so that's a little specifically for bicuspid valves, that's a little bit less common, but, but we do see it. And again, those patients are, are placed in a completely separate category in that we're not thinking about doing an isolated valve repair. We're thinking now if the valve is, is repairable of doing what's called a valve sparing root replacement. Okay. Mm -hmm. Or, and that comes in sort of two general flavors, what's called a reimplantation procedure or, or more commonly known as a David five is sort of one classic version of that procedure um, or what's called a remodeling procedure or, or the Yakub. 
um, which, which now in present day surgical practice will always contain some kind of annular stabilization with either an internal or external ring. Um, so these, so again, aortic regurgitation with a repairable valve and an aortic root aneurysm, I'd say defined by, you know, over four and a half centimeters mm -hmm. will, will put you in the valve sparing root replacement category. If the root can be, if the valve, sorry, can be salvaged. And, and this is actually a really common thing that we see with trileaflet valves. Sure. Honestly. So um, it's very common for patients with trileaflet valves to come in with root aneurysms and either, and you get, a, you know, I think you get kind of what, what I call sort of secondary AR from those patients, you know, from dilation um, of both the aortic annulus and the commissures, which kind of pull the leaflets apart. And then you get a central jet of AR in those patients. Um, and, and those are very, very amenable to treatment with the valve sparing route. Gotcha. Okay. Very helpful. Um, the very useful discussion there about, you know, the, um, that's sort of, as you mentioned, a different mechanism, you know, primarily regurgitation from aortic annulus dilation. And those repairs, you know, hopefully being able to do a valve sparing aortic root repair kind of circling back then to more of the topic that we were on earlier, you know, no, no aortic root aneurysm, aortic regurgitation. And um, let's take a minute and think about how a aortic valve repair in that situation um, is performed. And maybe first start with a, like a compare contrast with aortic valve repair and then mitral valve repair. Uh, I think a lot of listeners and, and people are, are more familiar with mitral valve repair, that being a very com common surgery, but aortic valve repair being less common. So what are the similarities and then what are the important differences? Sure. Yeah. And I think, Andrew, I would, I'd frame that discussion by saying, you know, even taking one step back and saying that the, you know, the fundamentals of frankly, both aortic and mitral valve repair but we're kind of focusing on aortic valve repair are, you know, annuloplasty or reduction of the size of the annulus, you know, and that, that achieves better leaflet coaptation. And then, so that's kind of the first thing. And then the second thing is any, you know, leaflet work that needs to be done plications, you know, to raise the height of the leaflets because, you know, you want your leaflets, coapting at the same height to prevent any leaflet prolapse, which mm -hmm. can result in leaks. Okay. And that's, that's actually fairly similar to the case in mitral valve, although the mitral valve valve has the subvalvular apparatus with the cords and things like that. So there's even kind of another layer there. I do think it's useful for us to sort of compare and contrast as, as you suggested, since, you know, mitral valve repair techniques are, you know, so generalizable. And, and I mean, this is the absolute gold standard for treatment of mitral regurgitation. And so mm -hmm. there, there are several important differences um, between the two procedures. You know, number one, I think the, the ability to achieve a reproducible annual plasty is much more straightforward in, in the mitral valve situation. So the mitral valve annulus is very accessible, you know, within the left atrium, you know, so surgically it's, it's fairly straightforward to, um, expose the annulus. 
And the left atrium is a low pressure environment, as you know, so there's a lot less stress and tension on that um, as compared to at least an internal aortic annuloplasty ring, um, which is gonna have significant stress sitting in, you know, sitting within the left ventricular outflow tract, as you can imagine with every single heartbeat. So yeah, with those internal rings, there has been issues with, you know, dehiscence and things if, if they're not properly anchored into place. Okay. The other thing I would say is there's a much more delicate balance between regurgitation and stenosis in the case of the aortic valve. There are lots of things we can do to the mitral valve. I mean, I think the most impressive thing is, is an alfieri or kind of mitral clip, another way to think about it. I mean, you can literally sew the middle of the mitral valve leaflets shut mm-hmm. and you frankly, very, very rarely induce mitral stenosis. Yeah. Complete opposite situation, obviously, on the aortic side. I mean, you're, you're constantly, you know, with each manipulation you do of the valve leaflets, especially in the, in the case of a bicuspid valve, you know, you are, you are walking a balance between regurgitation and gradients. And the more that you do and the more applications you do to raise the leaflet heights, you know, and, and get the leaflets to coapt more in the aortic position, the higher your postoperative gradients are going to be. And gotcha. so there's a delicate balance there. It's less forgiving for the postoperative stenosis than the mitral valve. In terms of gradients, yes, I I would say that that's true. The next thing that uh, I would mention is, you know, in the case of a tri-leaflet valve, there's three lines of coaptation. And and obviously in a mitral valve, there's one, given that there's two leaflets. Um, And so for a tri-leaflet valve repair, which, by the way, many times are, are actually more challenging than bicuspid repairs, Again, because you, you have three lines of coaptation between the three leaflets. And so it's much more sort of three-dimensional. And it's, it's a little trickier to assess your valve repair in the operating room prior to closing everything up and looking at echo. But to sit yeah. there and just assess it while you're repairing it, um, it's a little easier to do that in the mitral position than it is in, in the aortic. So there is a little bit of pattern recognition for the aortic valve repair to, you know, figure out if, if you've done enough, if you should do another plication, are the heights okay, you know, uh-huh. et cetera. Okay. Um, you know, and the last thing I would say is, is for the external annual plasty rings for aortic valve repair. I mean, that's a dissection, again, that, you know, most surgeons don't perform very often. I mean, it's not you know, unless you're doing a lot of aortic root surgery, you know, and have a practice that's similar to mine where you're very much focused in aortic surgery, that, that is an area of cardiac anatomy, you know, getting way down into the subannular space around the aortic root that just most surgeons don't do very often, right? And that's completely mm-hmm. different again than just opening up the left atrium, which is very, very standard. And so there's, I think there's some technical you know, challenges and difference, differences as well, just in that this is sort of many times this involves, you know, a dissection that we're just, that for many surgeons is just not performed very often. Sure. In fact, I think aortic valve repair surgery is also not very common, but maybe we could just, since we had brought it up and I'm thinking about it now, maybe we could talk about like, how, how is that surgery increasing in frequency or is it increasing in frequency, like on a national scale? Yeah. So that's a good point, Andrew. And I, I think this is again, where, you know, separating those, you know, different 
patient cohorts is, is really important. So I think for, for patients with aortic regurgitation and root aneurysms, it is very much accepted that the standard therapy, in my opinion, for those patients is a valve sparing root replacement. And the David five, the Dave, uh, David five, or to be fair, I mean, that I'm, I'm biased. That's what I do or a remodeling with some sort of annual plasty. Okay. okay. A, that's kind of, I would call that a modified Yakub. Okay. Uh, but the differences there probably aren't terribly important right now. That's a great operation. Okay. It, it's a reproducible operation. It is a fairly common operation. I, I mean, that's an operation that is not just performed, you know, at very high volume centers, but, you know, reasonably experienced cardiac surgeons who are comfortable with it can perform that operation. And, and it's, it's fairly reproducible. Okay. Um, and so in, in my opinion, you know, and especially for patients with root aneurysms who have more kind of moderate or even mild degrees of, of AR, I mean, you really shouldn't be cutting out those valves, um, especially in younger patients. I mean, I think most of those valves can be spared because mm -hmm. there's not, there's usually not an issue with the valve. Sometimes you get into fenestration, you know, if you get a huge uh, root aneurysm and there's been chronic AR that just hasn't been addressed for a long time, sometimes the leaflets are kind of destroyed and, and can't be spared. But most of the time, I mean, you have a 25 year old Marfan syndrome patient, that valve is probably pristine. And if yeah. it's leaking, it's just pulled away because of the aneurysm. Isolated valve repairs is much less common. I, I mean, by far and away, the most common therapy for these patients is some sort of valve replacement. Mm -hmm. Now, I think there is more and more interest in this area. You know, I, I can't quote you numbers for, you know, how much it's increasing. It is still the vast, vast minority of, of cases being performed, being repairs. But, you know, one thing we should mention is there's now a commercially available internal annuloplasty ring here in the United States. That's called the heart ring, um, H-A-A-R-T. And so that's really the first commercially available, you know, ring that has a fairly standardized sizing algorithm implantation technique, et cetera. And so I think with the advent of that technology, there are more and more surgeons doing this. With regard to the external annuloplasty rings that sit on the outside of the aorta, if that makes sense, and get sutured subannular space on the outside of the aorta, there's, there's no commercially available rings for those yet in the United States. There are rings available in Europe. They have not made it over to the U.S. quite yet. So surgeons will improvise and use, you know, Dacron rings. You can actually use a mitral annuloplasty band and turn it into a ring. But as you can imagine, that is, that's a much less standardized type of procedure. That, that's sure. much more sort of surgeon experience and refining their own technique. So this is still, we're still very much on the learning curve of these technologies and of these repairs. Okay. Very interesting. You know, we've been focusing on root aneurysms, but, you know, for ascending aneurysms, that's no problem. You know, we can fix those and repair a valve, you know, leaving the root intact. That's, that's very easy. That's a very standardized type of thing. So it's all about that root segment 
um, when you're thinking about when you're thinking about valve repair. Most of what I read about involving aortic valve repair is in the setting of chronic aortic regurgitation. Obviously, acute aortic regurgitation would be a separate topic. But I was interested in the thoughts about aortic valve repair for aortic stenosis. When might that be a useful or you know an applicable surgical technique? Most valves with significant aortic stenosis are not amenable to repair, mm-hmm. or at least with any sort of generalized valve repair techniques. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are certainly described things like the you know Ozaki technique of basically you know, using fixed pericardium to kind of remake an aortic valve. There's, there's a lot of controversy whether or not those, you know, do well long-term. So I think for me, again, if, if a valve has a significant degree of stenosis, I, I consider it not repairable at that point. However, I think there's, there's still an option for, you know, a, a living tissue valve in those patients, um, in the name of, in the name of a Ross procedure. Um, that I think is where we're, um, again, in younger patients leaning more heavily on a Ross procedure for patients with either pure aortic stenosis or even a mixed picture in appropriately selected patients. Gotcha. Okay. And just because I don't know that we stated it clearly before, um, a Ross procedure, this is where, you know, we're taking the pulmonic valve and inserting it into the aortic position, you know, that's right. our, that's our quote unquote valve replacement is the pulmonary pulmonic valve being moved to the aortic position. Exactly. And then we reconstruct the pulmonic valve, um, with what's called a homograft or a cadaver pulmonary valve. So the first question you should ask yourself is, well, why not just replace the aortic valve with an aortic homograft, which exists, which again is a cadaver aortic root. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that is that they calcify. They, they, they tend to have the same durability as a bioprosthetic valve. Um, in fact, they can be a little bit problematic because the entire root complex can then calcify and degenerate and they can form pseudoaneurysms and it can be a little bit of a mess. So an aortic homograft is a, is a, is a, is a good operation for complex endocarditis. We don't tend to use it very often for sort of run-of-the-mill aortic stenosis. So a Ross procedure, again, moving the pulmonary valve over the aortic position is much, much more durable. And the pulmonic valve works wonderfully as a neo-aortic valve. It's a semi-lunar valve. It's the patient's own tissues. There's low endocarditis risk. There are several technical points we do to limit dilation of the autograft, which tends to be one of the main modes of failure. Mm-hmm. Imagine the, the you know, pulmonary artery system is, is used to a lower pressure environment and actually avoidance of hypertension for about a year after surgery is critically important in these patients. Mm-hmm. That's been found to be a risk factor. And then again, we, we really get nervous if a patient has a big dilated annulus about doing a ROS and you don't want to see a big mismatch between the aortic annulus size and the pulmonic annulus size because then you can have dilation of that neo-aortic valve annulus on the autograft, and that can cause regurgitation as well. Yeah, okay, understood. What are the current gaps in knowledge or or surgical techniques regarding aortic valve repair? You know, number one, we are certainly refining and reinventing these techniques. 
um, as time goes on. I think we are learning the advantages and disadvantages of the internal aortic annuloplasty rings that sit in the left ventricular upflow tract versus the external rings. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the technology for, for both of those rings will continue to improve over time. I, mm-hmm. And I think definitely for the internal rings having, which by the way, are available in a, in a tri-leaflet and a bicuspid um, configuration. I think having those as low profile as possible, it, right? Because they're, they're taking up some space in the left ventricular outflow tract. Yeah. Um, I think, you know, it will take time to see how durable these repairs are over time, you know, and that gets into the issue of gradients, you know, so what does it mean if a young bicuspid patient gets a valve repair and has a post-operative mean gradient of 18? Mm-hmm. Now, what will that do over time? Obviously, the issue of valve and valve TAVR becomes a big issue. Mm-hmm. And that is a big question, especially with these internal rings. And one thing that, you know, makes folks a little bit nervous. And then what are the reoperations like, right? Because even in sort of the best of circumstance, we are going to be reoperating on these patients. Mm-hmm. And I think for all of these things, internal rings, external rings, valve sparing roots, Rosses, right? Anything we do, you know, there's a chance we're going to have to go back in surgically for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. And I think learning how to safely do those operations and sort of what are the implications and if there are things we can do on the front end, you know, to facilitate those reoperations and make them safer, I think are going to be really important. So that I think, Andrew, is, is the, the fun in a lot of this is that we are very much, I think, you know, on sort of the, the front wave of, of all of these things. And it's extremely exciting. I think it's great for patients and I think it offers a lot of promise, but this is no, by no means, you know, sort of a, a, a done deal or, or that we figured it out. I mean, we're still refining mitral valve repair, you know, sure. 30 years later. Um, and so this will be, this will be something that, you know, I will get better and more experienced throughout my entire career. And, and I think, you know, all of this stuff will continue to evolve in the same fashion. Cool. That's awesome. Now, I, I appreciate uh, your expertise, your advice, you're, you're really helpful with a number of our patients that we see in clinic in consultation. And yeah, I think uh, I agree with you. It's a, uh, I think it's an exciting area and fields. I think when I first heard of that concept and idea of aortic valve repair, I was like a little surprised because I hadn't heard of it before. And so just like the promise that that holds, um, particularly for, you know, for a lot of patients, the ability to, you know, maintain their native tissue valve and the potential benefits from there. I think that's really exciting. And yeah, I hope that things move forward that that's able to be refined and improved and you know applicability can expand in some in some respects yeah and i think you know andrew i would just add to that i mean i think what what's what i think is important from my end is you know it's important that patients at least understand that they have some options mm-hmm. right and you know repair may not be a great option for every, every patient, 
right? Because there's not a 30 year track record for this sure. stuff. And there are some patients who just say, look, you know, I don't care about Coumadin. I don't care about the valve ticking, whatever. I'll take a mechanical valve. You know, that's fine. And that's okay. You know, mm-hmm. there's, there's nothing, there's nothing I think wrong with that. Just, just as in for a patient with aortic stenosis, you know, not every patient is a good Ross patient, you know, and there are some patients for either preference reasons or for anatomic reasons that you get a valve replacement. But I think, you know, being able to, you know, honestly assess these choices and at least counsel patients on the relative, you know, pros and cons is extremely important. Because personally, I think if you have a patient less than 55 or 60 years old, you know, who's got valvular pathology and isn't hearing about either a repair option or in the case of stenosis or ROS, my personal opinion is that patient's getting a bit of an incomplete picture of of what their choices might be. And Mm -hmm. I mean, of all the conversations I have in clinic, which can range from very complex, I mean, older patients with aneurysms that we end up not fixing and we're talking about end of life stuff, you know, whatever it may be, this tends to be the longest conversation that I have in clinic. I mean, trying to digest some of the higher level concepts that we just went over, Hmm. you know, into somebody who's maybe like your patient, you presented 40 years old, you know, has valvular pathology. I mean, trying to talk about repairs and this and that, and then you get into the Ross and all the pros and cons and what does life look like in 10, 20 years, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, it is, it's easy to spend over an hour, which for a surgeon is like an eternity in the clinic, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, going over this stuff and, and many times, you know, I'll encourage patients, you know, go home and think about it and talk to people, do research and, and call me or email me and, and we continue the dialogue <laughs> because uh-huh. it is a big, it's a big decision. You know, the decision to, you know, forego a mechanical valve and attempt to repair, you know, or, or vice versa, you know, once the valve comes out, it can never go back in. Yeah. You know, it's a big, that is a life-changing decision for these patients. Um, and so it's exciting in that regard. Um, but I think it's, it's also our responsibility to completely understand, you know, the implications for all these things, including valve replacement and counsel patients appropriately. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, I was going to close by asking you about what excites you most about your job, but I think we've gotten a little bit of that taste. Um, <laughs> can definitely get it. Definitely sense the, the sense the excitement um, about this. So I appreciate that. I appreciate your enthusiasm. Absolutely, Andrew. I could I could talk about this stuff all day. <laughs> cool. Oh, so with that, I know you have a, a busy schedule, so I thank you for your time, and I will let you go. Absolutely. Thank you, Andrew. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening to this episode of AP Cardiology. This show is sponsored in part by MedPage Today. You can find transcripts of this episode and all other episodes of AP Cardiology on medpagetoday.com. Much thanks to the band Broke for Free.